Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia, conversations with Asia's movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. Each week, we bring you a little bit closer to understanding the complex world of Asia-Pacific, introducing you to topics and experts who break it down to build it up. This week, we take a look at the burgeoning solar industry. To be frank, it's been a slog in many parts of Asia where the appetite and economics for solar have long struggled to add up. Only Japan, some might say, has proven the exception. Change, according to my guest, Gavin Atta, has finally come, thanks in large part to a dose of good old-fashioned economics. Gavin, who now serves as CEO of Total Solar Asia, is one of the trueborns who embraced solar and its potential nearly 15 years ago. Few people have battled as hard as Gavin to see this renewable source of energy begin to take its rightful place. Through a series of executive roles at Samsung, REC, and Cleantech Solar, he arrived at Total, the French energy giant. His mission? To spread the word that solar is not only good for the earth, it's good for the corporate bottom line. Gavin Atta, thank you so much for joining us on Inside Asia. We're going to talk solar today, and uh, you're the guy I want to talk to about this. I've known you for close to 12, 15 years, and you were what I would call an early adopter professionally. You jumped into this business uh, when you were living in Korea. Could you start there? Tell us about that opening chapter. So, so uh, about 15 years ago, I was developing... Uh, large utility scale projects for Samsung in the US. Uh, we did about a, a billion dollars of, of these large scale projects. You put them in the desert and you send the power to uh, San Diego or, or uh, into New York, New Jersey, those kind of areas. Um, and we were you know, really enjoying uh, the returns from the projects and the scale. Um, and, but you could see returns dropping very quickly from the sale of power. There was still a big subsidy that remains in the US, an investment tax credit that makes those projects viable. Uh, and actually, the cost of solar is, is a little bit higher in the US because you've got those subsidies. Mm. Um, and, and we decided, look, you know, we could see the returns dropping out. We thought, you know, what can we do? We looked around and we saw that actually there's a rooftop solar business model that's doing very well in the US. And, and I, I spent a couple of years looking at how are they doing it and decided, you know what, I want to come to Singapore where uh, I, this whole region has fantastic solar, really expensive power, lots of little islands that really can't build a, a big coal plant or a gas plant. And I'm going to do rooftop solar here. So uh, I moved here. Uh, 2013, so seven years ago, and and tried to uh, get customers to do uh, rooftop solar. And, and try is the key word here. I think you've been scrambling at this for a while um, with some ups and downs. It's been a hard sell is my understanding, would you say? I mean, really scrambling uh, against the cliff to begin with. Um, you know, customers would just flat out refuse to see you. Uh, you go in and say, you know, the cost of solar is, 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 is lower than the grid. We can offer you the, the benefits of sustainability and, 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 uh, and you should be interested. And, and quite frankly, nobody wanted to know. Uh, um, sustainability in Southeast Asia is not a, a, a big byword. It's a byword for uh, cost. And so everybody was, was pushing us away. Nobody was interested. Um, but but the economics were there, and, and I think with new markets, 
the people in the industry can see what's coming down the road. Mm. And you could see back then cost of solar going down 10, 20 percent per year uh, and the cost of the grid going up five, six, seven percent per year. So you could see when you had hit grid parity, when had solar become cheaper than the grid. It took a bit of time for everybody else to realize, but you knew it was there. What's driving down the cost of panels, solar panels? Uh, China has just built this massive industry uh, where the the volume of panels that they are manufacturing every year uh, is that learning is just driving down the cost. So slightly um, bigger wafers, uh, slightly cheaper silicon, uh, getting glass co-located next to those systems so you don't have to ship the panels over to the glass manufacturers and then off to the customer. A lot of these kind of um, efficiencies have been slowly building over the last two decades. And it's the same thing that you see, actually, if you look at the historical cost of cars, uh, just the sheer volume of manufacturing and all of those Six Sigma lean manufacturing techniques being embedded into the manufacturing process over time, that, that's just driving costs down. So, so good news, China's lower per unit cost has plummeted, driving other non-Chinese companies out of business. The good news is that that's made the development and rollout of rooftop and solar farms more affordable and more efficient. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. A centralization in 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 uh, in China of all of that manufacturing experience, all the engineers and all the, the procurement costs mm. uh, 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 have made it a, a paradigm shift. And we relied on Europe and Germany and Spain and France to do the feed in tariff and start up uh, the business. But now the industry is really self-perpetuating. And that's something that Asia hasn't enjoyed to the same degree, those feed-in, those government-sponsored feed-in tariffs. Could you talk about that a little bit, how it worked to build a solar base in Europe and how and, and why perhaps it's not necessary or, or is, is late in coming here in Asia? So, so I, I'm, uh, I'm not a believer in feed-in tariffs. Mm. Um, I, uh, after doing projects in the U.S., and you could see how because of the tax credit, you could add a bit more cost, you could take that margin and everybody could just have a, have a, a project that is a lot more attractive uh, financially. Mm. But it, it, when that goes, and it, and it always goes, it's a shock to the system. It, it kills that market for a year or two. Mm. Um, and, and the only market that has been able to do uh, a very s- structured approach on feed-in tariffs that I know of is Japan. Mm. Uh, so France dropped the feed-in tariff and there was shock uh, we had retrospective tariffs, so so uh, the feed-in tariff was was encouraging lots of people to build projects, and then the government switched gear rapidly in a month, and and suddenly applied uh, extra taxes. These things have have really really killed markets because the shock was such that the developers all left that country. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the truth is that in Southeast Asia, there's enough sunlight to to drive. Uh, growth in the market without needing feed-in tariffs. And that's something that Singapore has done very well. Encouraged a lot of people to do solar, put in some uh, regulations that help to to encourage solar. For example, now you cannot build any building in in Singapore without it being solar ready. So that means a flat roof, that means easy access to water on the roof and things like that. 
So I think it's possible to to build markets and get markets going without that feed-in tariff, though it definitely helps. Is Singapore setting the standard for solar regulations in this part of the world? I'm focused on uh, rooftop solar, mm. and, and really, you've got you've got utility-scale solar competing with other generation like coal, um, nuclear, etc. And then you've got rooftop solar that really competes with diesel. Um, if you, you know, if you look at Singapore, they just don't have any space to do large utility scale projects. Right. And so they really need to fa- focus on rooftop solar. Mm. So on the rooftop solar side, I would say that Singapore has. Uh, they've really looked at how to make sure that the, the, the systems are safe and how to encourage in, in a very economic, sustainable way uh, solar projects to happen. And let's talk about the economics of solar now compared to five, ten years ago, of starting perhaps with the average payback period for a solar installation. What is it today? And I know it'll vary based on size and everything else that goes with that. But but how has that changed? And then break it down for me, Gavin. What are the other factors playing into the economics of solar today? The average payback is you know, very difficult to say Actually, every project has a different payback, um, but I'd say it's somewhere in the five to ten years. And and when I started, we were talking more like sort of ten to fifteen years mm. on an unsubsidized, no 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 uh, special government support uh, basis. Mm-hmm. So it gives you some ex- some idea about how much we've come down on, on solar costs. So I think a, a solar panel when I started was about. Uh, maybe a dollar fifty, something like that per watt, and now we're talking twenty cents, maybe le- slightly less than twenty cents. Mm. So f- five to ten years is about where we sit now. Um, that is m- a much longer payback than most industrials can accept. Uh, most industrials, if I think about some of my previous companies, if the payback was more than a year, then they were out. They they knew that they could buy more ingredients for their drink. They could install a new manufacturing line and get a payback of, of six months, 12 months, 18 months, something like that. And I think what's interesting is that you've got these big energy beasts uh, uh, like, like Total, like Shell, like the utilities that can take this long-term energy operating uh, revenue stream and, and do all the investment up front and, and take a long-term payback. Um, for me, the, the most important is that, is that grid cost. Uh, and, and if I think about one of our customers, we're working with um, uh, the second biggest food company in, in Thailand, a company called BetterGrow. Uh, and with them, we're able to give them almost a 50% discount on the cost of power. And they've become comfortable enough with solar that they've said, OK, let's just do a portfolio deal. We'll, take, we'll give you all of our facilities in the country. So that's 25 facilities. So when, when you, when you, sorry, 24 facilities. So when you take 24 facilities, I can scale. Mm. That means that my cost of power, my cost of install, installing the solar has come down. So we'll give them something like two to $3 million of savings annually. Uh, that becomes a meaningful impact for the group. Um, so, so one part is definitely the cost, the cost of the grid. How, how high is it currently versus uh, versus solar, uh, what is the levelized cost of electricity for solar? And let, let's say that's about seven or eight cents. So they're at 13, 14 cents for the grid. Everybody in Thailand is at 13, 14 cents for the grid. 
And then what, what is happening with escalation? So one of, the, one of the factors I find really interesting is if you look at somewhere like Indonesia, the cost of power in Indonesia might be eight or nine cents, but their grid is escalating, if you look at the last 20 years, at about 7.5% every year over the last 20 years. What's, ca- what's causing that escalation? Why are those costs rising for traditional grid? One, one thing is just sheer demand. The one thing is just there's more people, there's more more usage of, of electronics. It's, it's um, quite frankly, it, it's lower income uh, uh, population moving into the middle income bracket mm. and just putting too much strain on the existing uh, infrastructure. It's old transmission and distribution that they just haven't been able to, to invest to build up. And then it's the utility uh, PLN being subsidized by the government in order to push those prices down. But what that means is that they don't have enough money to invest in infrastructure. Mm. So these, these things have just been a problem for a long time. We're talking 10, 20 years of, of, of lack of investment, which has then led to the grid cost going, going up. Um, and also it's just reverting to mean. The actual cost, landed cost for a corporate customer uh, is, is about 13 cents. Well, in Indonesia, they're, they're, they're calling it eight or nine cents. So there's that gap that every kilowatt hour they're, they're losing on. So it's, it's kind of got to breaking point. There's been announcements by the government saying we're not going to be able to subsidize that anymore. So, so the corporates are looking at that and saying, uh-oh, we're in trouble. There's more awareness of what's been happening in the U.S. in terms of direct procurement by companies. So the biggest procurement of power, the, the biggest buyer of power in the U.S., it's not a utility anymore. It's Google. Mm. Uh, and, and, and so what you're seeing is I, you know, companies like Google are saying, in the U.S., I can directly buy power from whoever I want. And, and they might have to pay for the grid or they might be on site. Uh, I want to do that everywhere else. And they're going to the governments and the utilities and the energy regulators and saying, why can't I do that in Indonesia? Why can't I do that in Vietnam? So that is driving some regulatory changes. But, um, it, but it also sounds like corporates have identified or cottoned on to the idea that this is just better business, lower costs. I'm in control of this. Um, whether it's good for the earth or not seems to be a secondary consideration. I'd say there's two, two signs there. There's, there's, there's people like myself and, and uh, there's a lot of other startup guys out there who've been knocking on the door saying, I can give you a, a cost, I can drive down costs. Mm. The other part is uh, consumers putting pressure on those corporates. Mm. So you, if you think about uh, all the RE100 uh, corporates, uh, uh, companies like Amazon, Nike, Danone, etc., they've committed to do 100% of their power coming from renewables. Um, and usually it's sort of 25% by 2025. Um, and and, and they, as they start to do that, they've realized, hold on a second, my manufacturing base is in Southeast Asia. So they've been trying for the last few years and telling their local manufacturing companies, whether they're internal or outsourced, that they have to move to rooftop. And we've been trying to help that to happen. Uh, but but there just wasn't the, there wasn't the certainty that they would be able to reduce their costs. And we've now really broken through, done a few, and then started to get that awareness out. And I think the other problem is, is more regulations, right? So uh, in Indonesia, in Philippines, in Vietnam, basically in almost every market in Southeast Asia, you can't come in as an independent power producer and sell power, especially if you're a foreign company. 
And so it's taken some time uh, and quite frankly, a lot of resources and, and legal and tax and accounting work to, to, to structure contracts that make sense. So we can now go into Vietnam and Indonesia and, and do lease equipment leases or whatever structure that we need to do in order to make sure that the customer is getting the same thing because the customer doesn't want to take the risk of it's a rainy day and that means that I'm going to get less power. Uh, they don't want to take the investment up front on a five to 10 year payback, which is not their core business. Quite frankly, they're not going to be able to operate the system anywhere near as well as an expert in solar would. Yeah, and you assume those risks in order for a percentage of the payback. Is that right? So, yes, absolutely. What What's important for me and what I, I really saw in the U.S. sort of 10 years ago was that you need to have a business that is focused on what you do, right? If you're a utility scale developer, you're only going to be able to do utility scale. You can't do rooftop mm. and, and vice versa. So I've built a business that is just single-mindedly focused on doing rooftops and, and doing them quickly and efficiently and safely. Uh, and, and that means we generate much more power per project. So our, our systems will generate 20, 30% more power than, than, than other companies in the sector. And that, that saving, because we believe in it, we know it's going to come, we can give that back to the customer in terms of savings. Mm. You alluded earlier to the types of pressure that corporates are putting their suppliers under to conform, to move to solar or to move to renewables in order to uh, meet certain obligations that their organization have set for their stakeholders. How much of that is influencing their willingness to work with organizations like yours? I mean, that's, that in some cases, that's huge. And for us, we, we differentiate uh, on those two types of customer. So there's some customers that come to us and say, look, uh, the priority is price. I need, I need to get cost savings. I need to get them as quickly as possible. Please focus on that. Uh, and, and quite frankly, the problem, what they often miss is that you can take the sustainability benefits at the same time. It's not extra cost. Mm. And then there's other customers who say, who, who are saying, and they're coming to us and saying, I won't be able to sell to my customer. Let's call it Apple, Nike, uh, Google, uh, Danone, etc. I, I'm being told that if I don't move to solar, they won't buy from me anymore. Hmm. That, I mean, that is, that is an open and shut case. In that case, they have no, no choice. In fact, in many cases, their only customer is, is Apple or Nike or whatever it is. So they have to move to solar. So that's one thing that is having a really big impact on any B2C customers. So anyone who is selling to consumers has, has a massive pressure and then they're, they're going to their, to their supply chain. The other thing that's starting to happen is, and, and this is just starting, um, some governments are saying to some industries uh, that if you don't have rooftop solar, if you don't have some renewable energy, we will not allow you to add any more manufacturing capability in our country. Now, that is an absolute game changer because at that point, uh, it's no longer a nice to have. This is a must have if you want to do business in this country. That's the comments or that's the directive that they're giving to multinationals wishing to enter their country, not to their own national corporates. Is that right? It's everybody. Everybody. So it's, it's, not, it's not a way of managing or limiting foreign direct investment or foreign participation. It's a way of ensuring that there's sustainable, renewable options in order to reduce the negative environmental effects. 
exactly. So in, in, in the case that I'm thinking of, uh, this was a, a national company in their own country. They're one of the biggest players in that country, and they're blocked. They can't move. They can't, in, they can't finish the construction that they're currently in. They're building a, a large manufacturing facility, and they're stuck. And they're saying, please get me something as soon as you can, because I have a multi uh, uh, ten, uh, tens of millions of dollar uh, construction project, which is blocked in the middle. I can't do anything until this is done. Where are the governments feeling the pressure? Is that from their constituents or is it just this raising uh, uh, increase in awareness around the importance of protecting and safeguarding the environment for health reasons? I, I think that... Um, there's some interesting kind of links that are happening in the consumer mindset, right? So uh, you've seen a lot of people talking about COVID as something to do with climate change, as something to do with us not doing what we should be doing for, 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 for the earth. Um, but you're, you're seeing riots uh, driven around uh, pollution, plastic waste, a whole range of these different types of, of, of quite frankly, unsustainable activities or anti-sustainability activities. Mm. And, and the, the governments know that they can put pressure on these corporates. The corporates by themselves are realizing that they, they have to do this. And so you're seeing a lot of corporates saying, okay, what can I do around sustainability that's not gonna cost me too much? And, and actually what they're realizing is that solar and renew, especially on-site solar can actually, uh, hit two birds with one stone and so that you know they're saying hey if i can reduce costs at the same time as i uh, as i'm doing something some sort of csr activity that's fantastic and, and i think there's one point on that i think a lot of these uh, corporates are not great at understanding how to do csr mm. um, i launched uh, samsung's csr initiative for uh africa um, and and csr is different right you 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 do something you invest in something good for the earth and uh, you start to see those benefits, and, and over decades, over multiple years, you're able to keep coming back to that story. Look what we did. We, we, we you know, invested in, in uh, planting trees or, or solar or schools or whatever that is. And that, that builds over time. That takes a long time to come, and it gives you this aura, this natural, um, um, sustainable brand aura. And I think corporates need to need to realize how they can use that and leverage that for their for their benefit generally. You know, a lot of the language you were using before was around punitive results. So the government says, if you don't, or they're stalled, or uh, they have their licenses revoked, whatever the case may be. But it sounds to me like this is not only good business in terms of financial savings, but it's an opportunity for corporates to lean in offer these types of engagements and these types of developments in order to build a good grace with, with governments and regulators in a way that uh, perhaps they weren't able to do in the past. Why isn't more of that happening? I mean, that, that's a really good point. We are seeing, uh, and I'm thinking about sort of companies in Philippines and Indonesia where they're saying, look, I want to go really quickly. I want to be the first in my, in my particular state uh, to, or city. Uh, to do solar because I, I want to be seen by the governor or the mayor as being a, a good citizen. Mm. And, and I think that's really, really helpful to see that kind of mindset change. You're seeing kind of two different approaches. Some governments are saying, welcome, come, you know, how can we do more solar? What do you need? 
uh, let's talk to the developers, let's talk to the customers, and Singapore is a great example of that. But it's true that there were a lot of other ones, especially when the government and the utility are closely linked, uh, where there's, there's, there's still pressure against it. Mm. And there's still uh, um, actually a very strong negative feedback loop where some countries are really trying to prevent solar from coming in and they see it as a, as a threat rather than a, a positive mm. element. Because it undermines the revenue they might otherwise generate from their own grid. But it sounds to me like even then, there's not enough uh, supply to meet the demand. Absolutely. Mm. Uh, and so that, that's, the, that's the, the frustrating piece is you're seeing, you're seeing um, there's one regulation that really helps solar to take off and, that, and that's net metering. And so in that situation, which you have in some countries, but very few in Southeast Asia, uh, any excess power that you don't use, you can sell to the grid. Um, and that, that power is quite close to other demand, usually. It's in an industrial park or something like that, mm. which is already struggling and running diesel generators as backup or whatever the situation might be. Um, in many countries, it's not possible to do that. And, and quite frankly, I find that... Uh, strange. I expect that to change very quickly because we'd be happy to sell excess power at a very, very low price because it's better to, it's better to sell the excess power than to reduce the size of your solar system because you may have excess power and you need to reduce the size to make sure you don't have that problem. Mm. Gavin, what are the characteristics of a corporate customer who could benefit the most from these solar installations? So if you take your on-grid customers, uh, which usually are partly on grid. You know, they've got diesel that runs maybe an hour a day or an hour a month. Because uh, if you bring in diesel, then then the the economics change dramatically. Mm. Uh, where you know diesel is probably 24, 25 cents uh, per kilowatt hour minimum, uh, going up to 40 or 50 in many situations. Um, so if you're off grid. You know, we do solar and we do battery, we combine those together and we can give 50, 60, 70% discounts uh, to the current cost of diesel. And we're doing uh, one of the biggest uh, off-grid solar systems with a partner of ours called Canopy uh, in Cambodia. And this is a two megawatt battery, a 1.2 megawatt solar system provided to 27 businesses uh, on that island. Uh, so, so that that, is, that really is a no-brainer and, and uh, easy up from a cost perspective. When you're on grid, the, the, there's a couple of different factors. One is, do you have a lot of space, whether that's rooftop, carports, spare ground nearby? That, that's the first thing that we look at. And the second thing is, how much power are you using? Mm. Um, because we, 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 the, you may have a big roof, but if you don't have a lot of power consumption, you, you don't really need all of that rooftop. Um, and I suppose the final caveat is, you know, are you there? Are you planning to be there for three or four years? In which case, sorry, we can't make our payback. You can't. We can't give you the savings. This isn't going to work. But for anybody who's got a longer term contract uh, for their for their for their building, uh, then it's a really easy decision. Mm. And so we think about process manufacturing. You think about a lot of food companies are structured that way. Uh, automotive structure, semiconductors like that, chemicals, etc. And um, the only problems that we have are big logistics warehouses, no air conditioning, sometimes no lighting, and therefore no energy consumption. 
So prospects are sunny for solar in Southeast Asia. It sounds like most countries are getting on board, that the economics are right, uh, that the price points and then also the consolidation of the industry and participation by the large uh, uh, traditional energy companies are allowing for financing in a way that simply didn't exist before. Where would be the barriers or the concerns? So it's... uh, um I wouldn't say it's difficult to see those, but they're a long way off. Mm. Um, when you're when you're offering prices that are 30, 40, 50 percent cheaper than the grid, and the grid is continuing to go up uh, five to 10 percent every year, and the cost of solar is going down 10 uh, percent per year, uh, this, that's pretty sustainable. Don't mm. see that changing anytime soon. Um, at some point, uh, and and we're starting at such a low base. But at some point you get to saturation, Mm. right? So if we get to 20% of a country's power, and I'm still just thinking about rooftop here, but if I'm, if I'm 10 to 20% of a country's power, um, then there's a, then there's a, there's a chance that there's just too much solar there. And that's, I think, where battery comes in. And, and batteries are dropping at 25, the cost of batteries are dropping at 25% per year. Uh, uh, we're already able to add solar plus battery and cell power at around 17 cents uh, US per kilowatt hour. Um, now that, that's cheaper than the cost of power in Singapore for residential com- companies, but higher than for corporate. So uh, I think that in two to three years, that 17 cents for solar plus battery will be like more than, will be about 13, maybe 14 cents. And I think at that point, you're going to see uh, everybody taking solar plus battery. So a long runway. Uh, we're going to get the first pop with just uh, the initial adoption. And then there's going to be a second technological shift, which is going to allow for battery utilization. And that's going to increase the reach of solar that much further. I don't think you're going to get to 10% of, of, a, of a market anywhere in Asia for 10 years. Mm. So, so 10 years from now, you'll need batteries. And 10 years from now, batteries are going to be you know, fractions of what they are now. Uh, and we'll be able to add them on without a second's thought. And 10 years from now, the grid price will be you know, more than double what it is now. So, so I think that the, the underlying... Uh, trends in terms of cost for grid, cost for solar, cost for battery uh, are, are pretty undeniable. I, at least as where, where I sit at the moment, I would say that there's there's no um, there's no deal killer apart from governments that might try to to block uh, solar coming in with any sort of punitive taxes. Mm. Gavin, thank you so much for updating us and briefing us on the future of solar. We wish you great success. That was my conversation with Gavin Atta, CEO of Total Solar here in Asia. Finding a foothold to drive renewable energy investment has always been a challenge. In Europe, it was a combination of public support and regulatory incentives that kick-started solar and wind. In the U.S., the low price of oil and high cost of solar installations made it difficult. Only through intensive lobbying and an eventual shift in public sentiment did the appetite for solar take hold. The Chinese embraced solar for two key reasons. First, it helped address over-reliance on highly polluting coal-fired plants. And second, it reinforced demand for national manufacturers of solar panels and equipment.
Across developing markets, and particularly in the equatorial regions of Latin America, Africa, and Southeast Asia, there's no shortage of sunshine. It's political will and capital that's in short supply. Cost for governments and industries is the key driver. Public health, environmental protection, and goodwill are all secondary considerations. The best news of late is that solar is now not only affordable, but in many cases financially preferable. It's the confluence of events like the converging tributaries of the Mekong Delta that now appear to be creating a wellspring of support for solar. Not even collapsing oil prices appear capable of intruding on solar's rise. The combination of events, as outlined by Gavin, goes something like this, and it starts with manufacturing costs. China effectively drove down the per-unit price of solar panels over nearly two decades of aggressive investment and a fair share of price gouging. Solar manufacturers in Europe and North America found it impossible to compete, and many went out of business. Today, six of the world's top ten solar companies are Chinese. As the country has done with automobiles, consumer electronics, and industrial goods, the Middle Kingdom has applied its operational prowess to make more solar products for less. The key beneficiaries of lower-cost panels, of course, are project owners. From farms to rooftops, it costs a fraction today of what it did 10 years ago to generate solar power. Then, of course, there's the demand side. Hundreds of millions of people throughout the developing world have been lifted out of poverty on the back of three decades of global economic growth. They've joined the ranks of the middle class and they need and want power to light their homes, turn on their televisions, and charge their phones. Governments from Indonesia to Myanmar can barely keep up. In fact, they have largely failed to upgrade their power grids and distribution systems, which means generating and delivering energy has become increasingly inefficient. I've named the four key forces driving adoption of solar. Now for the fifth, corporate ownership. I'm talking about sustainability-minded global organizations that are waking up to the fact that they have a significant role to play in ensuring the health of the environment. In fact, as recent Inside Asia episodes have pointed out, company stakeholders from customers to suppliers to employees now demand that companies raise their game and find innovative and conscientious ways to contribute. Profit, so it seems, is no longer the primary goal. For any Asia conglomerates or multinationals with large-scale operations, choosing not to install solar is both denying an opportunity to lower its energy costs, while at the same time demonstrating its commitment to a more sustainable world. Seems like a pretty easy choice to make. Perhaps 2020 marks the year when companies from Singapore to Seoul take up the call and look to the sun. That's it for this week's episode. We thank you for tuning in. How sustainable is your business? Has this episode inspired a call to action, or better yet, a call to solar? Still have reservations? Reach out. Share your stories by leaving us a message or posting a comment on any of the Inside Asia pages on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. If you're not already a regular listener, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. It's entirely free, and there are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.